that you should look up your local Democratic Party, or your local school board, your Republican Party, and go to the next meeting. I think that's what you do. That's how you save democracy. There you go. Monocausal answer. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. This podcast is going to have two simple segments. The main part, a conversation. We have some great guests lined up for the coming weeks, especially one today who's just come to the studio now. But the idea is not just that I'll interview them about their opinions, it's that together we think out loud about the challenges ahead. Before we get there, I'll start with my take. At the beginning of every episode, I will share my reaction to recent events. What has been going on in Trumpland? Have there been any important events in other parts of the world? How can we make sense of the current situation? And what should we be doing to resist? So what have I been thinking about for the past few days? Well, I've been afraid. I've been afraid that we're still underestimating the populist threat. And that we're still too complacent about Donald Trump. At every turn, we've told ourselves stories about why Trump can't succeed. When he announced, we said, he's a joke candidate. When he was ahead in the polls, we said, he can never sustain his lead. Look at the other crazies who've been ahead in GOP nomination races in the past. When he won the nomination, we said, there's no way that that guy could win in a general election. Amazingly, we're doing the same thing all over again now. I can't begin to count the number of articles I've read saying that Trump is sure to be unpopular. That he can't destroy our democracy because we have checks and balances. But there's no way he'll get re-elected. But the most common arguments for that idea strike me as weaker than they seem. Let me just mention three of them here, and you can read my thoughts more fully in my column in Slate. The first is that Trump's approval ratings are terrible. And it's true. There's no president-elect in living memory who's had lower approval ratings than Donald Trump. But the approval ratings aren't nearly as bad on average as the extremes that I see on Facebook or Twitter when friends who agree with me that Donald Trump is a bad thing cherry-pick the worst polls for him. And the polls have become a lot better since the election. His favorable to unfavorable ratio is now minus 4.5. If he keeps improving, he'll be in positive territory. Another reason why they say that Trump is not a real threat is that his supporters will rebel if he slashes taxes on the rich or does big favors to corporations. And it's true that he has a strategic problem there. He said that he would stand up for ordinary working people and yet he's doing an economic policy that will harm them. But voters are very bad at holding politicians accountable for the situation of the economy. Trump could get lucky because some of these policies could cause a short-term economic boom and if he times that right, he will be looking good in 2020. And even if that doesn't happen, he can sell himself as a hero by saving 500 jobs at the carrier factory over here, 500 jobs in some other factory over there, and if the media keep going along with that narrative, as they have done since the election, that might look very good. 
Another argument that people say is that he's promised to build a wall and do a lot about immigration and he can't actually do that. I think that is one of the points on which opponents of Trump have been more naive. As the saying has been going for the last weeks, they've been taking him literally but not seriously. There won't be a brick-and-mortar wall on every part of the U.S.-Mexican border. But can Trump spend a lot of money in order to get some kind of fortification on most parts of the wall? Yes. Can he build enough of a stretch of actual literal wall so that he can take a big PR-friendly victory tour up and down that stretch of wall briefly before the 2020 elections? Of course. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, we've been assuming that there's checks and balances, that everybody will rebel if he abuses the powers of his office. And that is the point that I'm most worried about. In order to survive, democracy doesn't just need a constitution, well-thought-out institutions. You have to have people who actually stand up for that constitution, who actually are willing to impeach a president if he goes too far, who are not willing to go along with abuses of power. And so far, we've seen Donald Trump be enabled by his allies time after time. So yes, we have the constitutional means to oppose him, but doing that will take a real turn of public opinion against Donald Trump and a real awareness of how much of a danger he might be to the democratic system. So it's now our job to build that. I do think we can beat Trump, just as I think we can beat populism around the world. But the first step is to jettison our comforting assumptions and take a hard look of what is facing us. I'm delighted to have one of the most interesting young scholars and thinkers about public policy join me uh, for the conversation part of the podcast today. I've known Vanessa Williamson, uh, who's now a fellow in governance studies at Brookings since we're graduate students together at Harvard. Uh, in her first years there, she did a lot of research about the Tea Party, crisscrossing the country to speak to activists, a resulting book, The Tea Party and the Remaking of Republican Conservatism, co-authored with Fides Koshbo, is one of the best things written on the rise of American far-right populism. Vanessa is now working on Americans' attitude towards tax policy and the author of a forthcoming Read My Lips talking to Americans about taxes. Vanessa, one of the things I've been thinking about is it's, it's sort of easy to feel powerless in the face of a Trump presidency. I know that you've fought a lot in broad terms about civic activism and more specifically about what we might be able to do at the moment. So what can ordinary Americans do to actually stand up for the right things in the next four years? Well, I think a lot of Americans have been, um, you know, planning to protest and sort of lodge their objections in social media and even donate to, you know, noble causes. But I think one thing that would really make a difference is if people went back to a kind of an older style of activism, a style of activism where they actually participate, right, in local organizations. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, Americans are famous for their interest in volunteering, uh, and that persists, but it persists in a slightly different way that makes people a little less practiced um, when it comes to, you know, speaking in front of a group or um, running for local office, that kind of thing. So I think that one thing I'd love to see is people re-engaging in democratic organizations that already exist, whether it's a political party or you know even a student group, and using those platforms to organize together, because I think together people are much more powerful in the face of these sort of broad questions of democratic decline. You know, I'm both really convinced by that and really confused by that, right? Because like, 
I can see, you know, you have this image of like, you know, there's a, I mean, not speaking about Trump now, but there's a dictator, right? And like in Poland, always people organize and they stand up and they're in the streets and like, you know, that's what brings the dictatorship down or something. But like, how does that actually work? Like, how does me engaging in even my local church group or my local choir or my local bowling league, how does that translate into something at the national level? And why does it matter that I practice speaking to like my fellow bowling league you know, committee or something. Like, why does that matter? Well, first of all, I think that it's important just for average Americans to remember what democracy is really like. And I think that it's easy to confuse democracy with maybe voting every four years or with what we see going on in Washington. And that's actually not, that's not democracy. Democracy is when average people participate and average people have a say. So, so actually, that's not so much this is a way of resisting Trump. It's like this is a way for us to practice our democracy whatever is going on at the national level. So it's not just that it's helpful in order to resist at the national level, it's that it's actually a way of practicing democracy at the local level, even as developments might be quite bad at the national level. Well, I think that if we're going to defend democracy, you have to practice it. It's by practicing democracy that we learn to be citizens. That's why we think that all people can participate, right? Because it's just the practice that makes you capable mm -hmm. of being a citizen, you know, which is an old idea, but I think even now a radical idea. So that's one piece of it, right? There's the fact that too many people sort of live in this country more like subjects, right? They, their experience mm. of government is just being told what to do in one form or another. And that's not what this country is supposed to have been about traditionally, and it's not, not what we want our country to be like in the future. Uh, but the other piece of it, of course, is that um, local organization creates power, right? As individuals, not, no person is strong enough as a you know, regular citizen to stand up to a dictator, but organizations are. And the thing, you know, that, that sounds maybe like naive, but the reality is that dictators know that those organizations are problems, right? So there's some great social science work actually done by some of our colleagues uh, looking at what the Chinese government bothers to censor on mm. Chinese Twitter. Yeah. And what they censored was not people saying, oh, I hate the government, the government sucks. What they censored was anything that uh, smacked of collective action, even if it wasn't about the state. Even if it was in favor of a state, right? So there's an example where people were calling to sort of have anti-Japanese protests, right? Which sort of was actually very much in line with government policy at the time, but retching up that rhetoric. But that scared them as well. Right? Exactly. So it's not the content of social activism that matters. It's not the content of organizing that matters. Even things that are, you know, not threats to the state in any direct way actually do undermine that sort of total power at the top, which I think is what uh, we're all working to resist. So do you see that as one of the deeper roots of people's disenchantment of democracy, that there used to be these intermediary institutions? And what it meant to be a citizen of the United States was, you know, yes, the right to vote for president every four years, but also the fact that you were, you know, the treasurer of the local veterans association. Right. I mean, um, I, I think yeah. there, I mean, it's important, right, to bear in mind that our, our democratic past is, was not in any way perfect, right? I mean, for much of it, someone like me could not have voted, right? Uh, and many, many other Americans could not have voted. So obviously, there have been these huge steps forward. But at the same time, there's been this sort of institutional decline, right? And what we need to do is create an America that has that organizational power that is what helped bring about the end of slavery, what helped bring about women's suffrage, what helped bring about the civil rights movement, that organizational power that is our tradition. And combine it with this much broader polity that I think we're all very glad to have. So I'd love to hear how you think that sort of story of civic decline fits into a story that I've told myself a little bit. So give me a moment here. So, you know, I, I think one of the strike, one of the texts I most love teaching to undergrads is the parts of uh, the Federalist Papers where the founding fathers really say, we are founding a republic rather than a democracy. 
And the most striking passages where they say that, you know, the essence of a republic as opposed to a democracy is, in capitals, the total exclusion of the people in the collective capacity from any share in the government. And you can see, you can imagine the sort of faces of a bunch of 18-year-old, you know, <laughs> idealistic Americans thinking that, wait, hang on, this is not what people tell us about our, our political system. And I think actually then over the course of the 19th century, our political system gets sort of reinvented as a democracy. It gets redescribed as a democracy um, because democratic sentiment is rising and because there's a sort of justification for it, right? Which is that, as John Adams says, well, it's not possible for all of us to come together into one place and deliberate together because we're not in ancient Athens, right? There's too many of us. We're too far apart. We have to go earn our own living. So how would we do that? So, you know, yes, we only get to vote every two or four years, but that's the most direct kind of form of government we can realistically have. Now, that was never quite true. You could have always had more direct forms of government. It seemed plausible enough. And I think that sort of democratic myth did a lot to justify the system. And now I think people increasingly feel that our institutions, they don't quite do what they promise to do, right? But they don't actually allow you to go and vote directly. I know what it feels like to vote directly. I go on Facebook and I click like on something and like the little button like, you know, becomes blue for a second and the three turns into a four, right? And that's much more direct than going to vote every four years. And so so I think there's this sense that people have that actually the claim that we live in a democracy is is slightly fraudulent. It's not quite true. And I think that's sort of slightly new compared to 50 or 100 years ago. Um, but I guess, you know, you might say, well, okay, so perhaps America was never quite that democratic of a national level, but it was democratic in other ways because people had these associations and so Like, how does your story fit into that story? Or do you just think that my story is wrong? Hmm. I mean, I think that there's no reason that we need to see these two things, right? One, the fact that you're voting among 150 million other Americans, right? So your say is undoubtedly small, even if every vote was counted equally and fairly. Um, it, to see that as at odds with uh, the sort of day-to-day -day democracy, right? Mm. Because if what you want is people every four years to make an educated decision about how politics should be, they need to be engaging in politics. Regularly, politics can't be a bad word. It has to be a word for how we choose how our society should be, right? Um, so I don't see those two things as at odds. But I think Americans, and you know, I, mean, I agree, probably you do too, that uh, in many ways we don't yet live up to the ideals that our country is supposed to stand for. And that should be mobilizing, not demotivating. Mm. Uh, it's our job to make this country what it claims to have been. Yeah, that's a nice way of thinking about it. So so I'm trying to think, you know, one, one of the real upswells of, uh, groundswells of, of, of energy um, has been the Tea Party, right? And, and it's a double-edged sword because it really got people involved into politics who had felt disempowered in many ways. But, you know, in one plausible telling, it also provided the groundwork for some of the sort of more open racial appeals that you saw with Donald Trump's presidency. And so how connected do you think that the, the sort of Tea Party movement was to to Donald Trump's candidacy? And, and what drove those? Right. So the Tea Party, on the one hand, was this, I was terribly impressed by their level of local organizing. Uh, people ran for local school boards. People, you know, they would arrange to all show up to the local Republican committee meeting. And they're, you know, these are extremely sleepy events with five guys who usually show up and they're all the officers. I mean, and they would just come in with 100 people and vote themselves huh. in and they'd just be in charge of the local Republican Party. They would show up to, you know, zoning meetings and all kinds of things. You know, and often, uh, you know, I, I think really unfortunately with sort of 
uh, bad information about what decisions were actually being made there and sort of concerns about policy that were uh, overdrawn. You know, I mean, people often thought that decisions about in, putting in bike lanes were part of some sort of UN conspiracy. That's not a joke. That's, <laughs> that's actually something that that's, I that's had. So you sat down there with people and, and believed you in the, Genuinely in the eyes. believed what, what, When you try to explain, look, that's not actually the case, what, what was the reaction? So uh, mostly that's not, what, that wasn't my job, right? My job was to understand what mm. they were saying rather than to correct people because uh, I wanted to see what people believed. But at one point there was uh, one woman who was deeply, she works, she worked in hospice care, which, you know, is, is a job that I can't imagine being emotionally strong enough to do, caring for people who are in their last days before they die. And uh, so she was uh, in some ways an, an extremely admirable person, but at the same time she believed in the death panels. Uh, and I don't know if you remember what those mm, were. Yeah, this yeah. was the idea that uh, Obamacare, the ACA, would bring in panels of uh, doctors or government bureaucrats or something that would decide whether to continue your care or not. Right, right. right. And so she thought those were real, and she was terrified for her patients. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, at that point, my co-author and I actually talked to her and said that, you know, this is, you know, my co-author, Theta Scotchpole, is an uh, expert on healthcare reform. And so right, I said, right. you know, I've actually read this legislation. I assure you that's not what's going to happen. Just because it's, it was a really sort of a human moment. And did she buy that? I mean, was, that, was she sort of reassured by that? Or was she like well, looking I mean, at you and thinking, or looking at Theta and thinking, why are you lying to me? Uh, I, I mean, she didn't, I think have a, a particularly obvious reaction either way, and I don't know whether it would have stuck. I mean, she listened, and we, you know, I felt that we had sort of connected in that moment, but what it would have meant for her in the long term, I'm not sure, right? There's, just because you sort of, you know, nod politely when someone tells you something you right, disagree doesn't with doesn't mean... Doesn't mean, you, mean right. well, <laughs> two hours later, hour and then you go back to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I don't I mean, know. What I find fascinating about that story is that, you know, you often hear, well, you know, people are sort of nasty or, you know, aggressive in, in one way and then they're very nice in another way. Right. And it's often seen as sort of unconnected, right? I mean, paradoxical, but unconnected. It's like, well, you know, this guy who's like, you know, racist and sort of goes on about all kinds of things in his community, but then his next door neighbor, you know, he's nice to because, well, that guy is nice, yeah. right? But what's funny about this story is actually that the two things are connected, right? right? That like the reason why she was so worried about death panels is that she's such a caring person who cares for her hospice patients, right? right. And, and it's, yeah. it's, it's a tighter connection in a weird way. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I think that a really important part of the research for me was being able to understand how, um, you know, rather than just be like, well, they are they have got some policy ideas that are simply not based on the facts, you know, which is a very easy thing to believe about many, many Americans, <laughs> uh, frankly, and, you know, probably myself as well. Uh, I'm not fully informed on every issue, certainly. But to recognize that actually there's a really coherent story that people are telling themselves, and there's a version of their activism that I, I think is deeply admirable. What is terrible is how that sort of consolidated at the national level, right? Tea Party activists I spoke to, I think one person mentioned they really liked Donald Trump over the entire time uh, huh. that I interviewed people. Uh, and Trump wasn't really a he was sort a of political figure in that way. Political figure at the time, no. But they never really consolidated behind a single um, presidential candidate mm. uh, in, during the period of my research. Uh, but I think that what Donald Trump managed to do was really tap into several things that helped bring the Tea Party into power, right? On the one hand, the sort of very explicit anti-immigration rhetoric mm. that he used. Uh, he really crossed lines that other uh, Republican candidates, they would, they would dog whistled on subjects, right? But he was like, no, no, we're putting down the whistle. I'm just going to tell right, it to right. you. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, this I'm, I'm dropping the, the, the pitch of a dog whistle. Like yeah, a right. So totally audible for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so explicitly racist things. 
And so that was something that I think was probably very appealing for a lot of people. The tea party, people in the Tea Party were very concerned about immigration. So I think mm. it, that's one of the reasons Donald Trump had such success in the primary. Uh, and also, you know, the role of conservative media and media in general in sort of uh, building these narratives about things like death panels, um, about all sorts of sort of conspiracies that exist on the right, was really powerful in the Tea Party. And I think that Donald Trump was very tapped into that, right, both through his sort of social media presence. You know, the Barack Obama wasn't born in this country stuff. That was one of right, his first right. political engagements. Uh, is another thing that really appealed to the Tea Party. I guess like one of the weird paradoxes about this, and there's obviously been a lot of, there's been a lot of debate in the last months about are the drivers of Trump's electoral success economic or are they about race and identity? And, you know, in a way that is a silly debate because these two things are not mutually exclusive. Exactly. They can both be going on at the same time. That is true. The, the, the world is not monocausal. And moreover, these two things actually reinforce each other quite easily, right? We know from social psychology experiments and so on that when people feel economically threatened, they're also likely to become less tolerant, right? But there is still something paradoxical here, which is that, you know, the Tea Party talked about immigration and all of those things, but it saw itself in some ways, if I'm right, uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, as a primarily sort of economic movement. And Trump, I'm sure, is drawing a lot on that economic anxiety and talks about it as well. But still, the thing that seemed really striking about and, and new about the tone of his candidacy was about sort of race and identity issues. So is that just sort of like different parts of a coalition being emphasized and becoming visible? Or do you think there's a shift in the coalition there? So uh, just to be clear about the Tea Party, first of all, people who participate in the Tea Party tended to be older conservatives. That means that on average they were doing better economically than than many Americans. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they hadn't experienced a shock with the, the collapse in 2007, 2008. While the issues that people spoke about in the Tea Party nationally tended to um, at least use some of the rhetoric about you know taxation, big government, that kind of thing, rank-and-file Tea Party activists were strongly supportive of entitlements like Social Security and Medicare, which they felt that they had earned. What they felt when there was a distinction between benefits that were earned, like the ones they were receiving, and benefits that they saw as unearned, uh, that they saw other people as receiving. Mm. And that was a highly racialized, of course, distinction. Oh, higher. Um, so it's not that these issues, I think, are, are separate fundamentally. The other thing that uh, I think really bled over from the Tea Party into the Trump campaign and actually preceded it as well is a, is a rhetoric of sort of societal decline. Right. Mm. So older white conservatives in the Tea Party often talked about like sort of looking out in the country and it wasn't their country anymore. Right. And interesting. You know, I think what in some ways they looked at Barack Obama's campaign and a thing that liberals tended to see as a very positive aspect of it. Like this is a younger America. This is diverse right. America. This is our future. They also saw those things uh, and they just didn't like him. Right. They wanted to go back to a more traditional America. And you see that in the sort of Americana of the Tea Party with the sort of the tricorn hats and the, right. at the very beginning. But all of that harkens back to an America that it is in the past and was also a lot whiter, a lot less diverse by sort of the modern categories of diversity. And so, you know, when you have this intersection of young America being a more diverse America, the sort of make America great again rhetoric of Donald Trump really taps into that sentiment. So how does Donald Trump fit into that, right? Because on the one hand, I, as you were talking, I was also thinking, well, make America great again. Of course, there was the ground there for him to exploit that. But, you know, the sort of wholesome Americana, you know, is also so different from, I mean, I mean Trump, obviously, in some ways, you know, he's actually relatively old, and, and, and he obviously is white, and, and has, 
interesting views on race um, and immigration. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he's 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 a product of reality TV. He lives in 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 Manhattan. He's he's divorced. I, I forget how many times, right? So like, how how does that fit into that idea of traditional America? I mean, you know, if it's really about small c conservative traditionalist, I want to go back to what our country was like 50 years ago, then Trump should in a way be the enemy, right? And so perhaps this makes me think that the race stuff is prominent, that it is the main driver. Because if you want to go back to a traditionalist community of the 1960s, Donald Trump is the last person who fits into 1960 small town America, right? <laughs> right. So I think that there, there's two important things to, to pick out there. One is, and this is a part for me of the sort of political uh, savvy that I saw among Tea Party activists, they don't make heroes out of their politicians. Oh, they wow. never really did. You know, in Massachusetts, right, uh, one of the first candidates to get elected with Tea Party support was Scott Brown, who was a very, by the National Republican Party standards, very moderate, uh, very conservative for Massachusetts. And, you know, the Tea Party activists I spoke to were not convinced that he was their be-all, end-all candidate, but they also knew they couldn't get their be-all, end-all candidate elected in Massachusetts. So right. they were thrilled to get a Republican, you yeah, know? Yeah. And that didn't mean that, the ne that, you know, two weeks later when Scott Brown wasn't doing what they wanted, they didn't call up his office and yell at him, right? right, right. So um, I think that... But they sort of expected to yell at him once he'd get elected. <laughs> exactly, right? So there's the idea that... Um, your politician is is going to be perfect to you just because you helped elect them is just not something that I saw, which I think is actually you know politically a pretty huh. pretty wise way to look at things. Uh, which, by the way, might might show why <laughs> Trump may not have so many problems holding together the coalition because even though people will be really pissed off with him when he doesn't quite do what they expect. They're actually much savvier about it than some liberals believe, who are sort of like, well, he's going to sell them out and will immediately hate him. And then his approval ratings will tank and we'll be fine, right? right Whereas your story actually sure. sort of suggests they're like, no, no, I mean, they know they're going to lose on a bunch of things, but that doesn't mean they're not going to still support him if that's the best realistic alternative that that, that, that can sort of hope for. Uh, there's a difference between activists in the Tea Party and sort of general uh, conservatives or people who voted for Donald Trump. I think that some of them, you know, may be quite uh, surprised by the, the outcomes that come out of this or, and to the extent that the, they're made visible to them. And I think that's it's an open question. But more broadly, I think that, so there's not this hero worship of politicians. Um, and at the same time, you know, the, the sort of cultural decline rhetoric fits with certain policy proposals about mm. cutting, for instance, uh, uh, means-tested programs, right? And so um, I think that those pieces of the Republican coalition can be made to fit together. Or uh, relatedly, you know, you can talk about cutting spending on Planned Parenthood in a fiscal conservative tone, mm. that this is big government, what have you here. Or you can talk about it from a socially conservative tone, right? right that right. We, this is something that is just wrong and therefore we are eliminating funding for it. So I think that the Republican Party has been quite savvy at finding points of alignment uh, within their coalition, right, that fit, that fit all, that check all the boxes for people who actually have quite different priorities. And then also uh, picking political fights that benefit them uh, in future elections, right? So things right, like right. voter suppression. So, so you've made a couple of uh, <laughs> a couple of dog whistles to to your research, not to. Uh, <laughs> uh, which oh. is, is, <laughs> I sorry, I've never thought of it. In those I, terms. I, I'm, I'm sad that people can't uh, see your face right now. You're very shocked. That <laughs> um, that I think not everybody listening to this podcast will know that sort of you know a few of allusions you've made to the idea of 
people in the Tea Party, for example, actually being very supportive of certain things like social security, mm-hmm. and at the same time being very skeptical of some means-tested programs, uh, really speaks to a wider research agenda you have, right? So, so, so one of your surprising claims is that Americans actually like taxes in some ways, and that they see it as a civic obligation. Why convince us of that? Right, this is always an uphill battle, especially recently. <laughs> but um, so, one of the things that really struck me among Tea Party activists is how often they describe themselves as a taxpayer, right? And if you think about it, you know, you can't can't walk around in America for 15 minutes and buy a soda and not have paid a tax, right? right. So this is really a very broad category and how you consider. But people in you know not just in the Tea Party but more broadly, uh, you know, it's something that people say. You know, I pay my taxes and. And the end of that sentence is almost never about taxes. It's always about their right to speak or their. Uh, that they are deserving of, of dignity and attention in the civic space, right? And so I had sort of noticed this weird rhetorical tick, and I wanted to look into it. And so the reality is that Americans are uh, overwhelmingly consensus level, like 90 plus percent agreement that tax paying is a civic duty. Hmm. Uh, and that actually translates into very high levels of tax compliance in the United States, something that economists do not think you can explain with enforcement or the hmm. role of the IRS. They say that the best explanation is what they call tax morale, right? Hmm. Which is this sort of sentiment that this is actually what you should do. And so when people are angry about their taxes, many people are very bothered by aspects of the tax code. But what they're angry about is not the amount they pay. Something like 8% of Americans pick that as the thing that really bothers them. What they're angry about is one of two things, either corporations or wealthy people not paying their share, Hmm. right? Because if tax paying is a civic responsibility that we take really seriously, then the idea that some people are shirking their their responsibilities uh, causes a lot of anger. What does that mean for the kind of policies that the Democratic candidate should put forward in 2020? Uh, This is, I think, a real challenge for the Democrats going forward, because on the one hand, Americans on average are pretty supportive of progressive taxation. You can ask the question a lot of ways. They do think rich should pay a higher percentage, a larger share than the poor. And so progressive taxation is a really, you know, it's, it's uh, taxation in America is exceptionally progressive compared to other countries, which is rarely recognized. Hmm. Um, but other countries, when they rely on a VAT or something like that, lower income people actually end up paying yeah, so, a higher percentage. So just to explain, so, so, so VAT... Um, you know, the sort of tax you pay when you when you buy a soda, right? Um, and that doesn't exist at the federal level in the United States. It only exists at state taxes. And those state taxes are much lower than in other countries. And, and VAT tends to be really regressive because everybody pays it at the same rate. And, you know, poorer people spend nearly all of their money. So actually, they end up paying even more of their income than, than richer people who put some money away and save it. And so they don't pay VAT on that kind of stuff. And the other thing that's really progressive about the American tax code is sort of how much you have to earn before you start paying taxes, which is which is more than other countries, and how low the initial tax rate is, which is actually much lower than in other countries. Um, so yeah, in all of those ways, the American tax system is really progressive. Yeah. So yeah, so the ta- American tax system is, by the way, an excellent explanation of how sales taxes work, and almost no Americans know that. People don't see the sales tax as regressive, which is really too bad, uh, because it makes them support sales taxes in a mm. way that they wouldn't if they knew uh, how that burden fell on lower income people. But uh, yeah, so the American tax system is, is really quite progressive, at least until you get to you know, 10, 20 million dollars a year or more in income. And at that point, it's very hard to compare tax systems because who knows how much money those people have really and all of it's sort of international anyway. Mm. Uh, but the American tax system is broadly much more progressive than in Europe. So on the one hand, that's a really important aspect of how we uh, limit income inequality, right? A lot of the economic research says that high marginal tax rates on very high incomes are what help keep this country having a basic level of equal opportunity. But on the other hand, we're not raising the kind of money that European states can do for big social programs, right? So I think the Democrats have this challenge where on the one hand, they want to say we only raise taxes on people making more than $250,000 a year, which is admirable on some dimensions, right? But on the other hand, if you want to fund 
programs like Social Security and Medicare that have this very broad support that are very hard to, uh, you know, even when you have right now a, a Congress that's going to give it a fair shot, very hard to uh, dismantle. You need broad-based taxes, right? Right. So I think and, that's and, a, and this a is challenge. not just so I'm sure I understand. This is not a conceptual link; it's an empirical link, right? So in theory, you could say, well, there's two distinctions here, right? The first distinction is between programs that everybody enjoys, like Social Security, right? Everybody who's worked for four years and so on at some point of their lives gets mm. Social Security, mm. and so there's much more political support for these programs. And so, you know, even though we sometimes end up sending a social security check to billionaires, it's worth having these sort of universal programs because uh, it feels fair, because everybody participates in it, and because the political coalition behind them are much stronger compared to means-tested programs, right? So in theory, you could just have the very rich pay for those kind of universal programs. There's nothing sort of conceptual about that the only problem is that actually you need to raise so much money right. that you can't realistically do it. Is, is that right? Yeah. So I mean, those two pieces I think are both important. On the one hand, you know, it's easier to raise a lot of money, and frankly, there's I mean, there's a lot of Americans. There's a lot of money if you put even a low tax on them. And when you put those that money into programs that they can see, they have that political advantage, right? So that's it's practical both on the economic and on the political side. Um, but I think it's a challenge for Democrats because it's not been the rhetoric they've been using at least since Clinton was in office. So they've mm. been really focused on uh, raising taxes on the rich, which, again, has its huge advantages. But it uh, makes it harder to put forward these big, obvious benefits that, first of all, you know, protect the lives of American citizens and also uh, have sort of a political currency that makes them sustainable in the long term. And do you think this is a matter of reinforcing the basis for existing universal programs? Or do you think that there's new universal programs we need, for example, to deal with problems like automation and 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 the massive job loss that may be facing us in the next 20 or 30 years? Well, I think there, I mean, there are a couple of programs that are out there. People have talked a lot about um, better uh, family leave, family and medical leave. That's been a big push. You know, sort of recognizing that raising kids is work, even if it's not paid work. And similarly, I think... And what, would, what, what, what might a program like that look like? Well, an interesting thing is in Pennsylvania, they've been talking about having, and I I don't, I'm not sure that this is the best setup, but they've, they want to pay for universal pre-K mm-hmm. uh, with a uh, sales tax on soda. Right? Oh, wow. So that's sort of you know, one of the ways that people are talking about doing this. Now, I mean, whether that's the right idea because how much soda people drink and how much pre-K you need are not perfectly linked. I think maybe in a lot yeah, so of it has if, sustainability if, if soda issues. consumption goes down in the next years, then suddenly, yeah. There's nothing money for this program that you need, right? Which is one of the other reasons why making the programs linked the way Social Security is, that you've got workers coming in and workers going out is a, is a sensible mm. way to do things. But so I think paid, uh, paid family leave is one of the big issues that you could get a huge consensus around. And then, of course, uh, the question of, you know, changes in the economy, leaving a lot of people without steady work uh, right, that right. used to provide them with social protections. How do you make sure that people have a basic decent standard of living that allows them to participate as American citizens in a climate where jobs are scarce or inconsistent, I think is a really important question going forward. Yeah, and then there's obviously some people who think about universal basic income and all of those things. I mean, what do you think a a Democratic candidate in 2020 should run on? Do you think they should run on, look, taxes are our civic responsibility or recognize that? And we want to make sure that that they're fair, but in order to do that, actually all of us will have to pay for some of these new programs and these programs will be amazing. 
Or do you think we should stick with this sort of, no, 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 read my lips, I'm not going to raise taxes on, on people who earn more than, uh, less than 250k or whatever, whatever sum you might pull out of a head? Well, I mean, I think that you can, you can actually, you know, call for both of those. You can say, we're all going to pay this tax for this benefit. You don't just mm-hmm. be like, you don't just explain a cost to someone and not explain where the money goes. That is a terrible approach. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> right? So, I mean, you're like, here are some things that Americans need, right? Yeah. I know that uh, you guys are struggling with the cost of childcare. I know that you've got, your parents are getting older and you're trying to hold down your job, how are you going to manage those things? Here's how we're going to do it, right? It's a simple program. It works like Social Security and Medicare. I think that's something that appeals to people. So that's one thing. And at the same time, you know, like, you know Americans are aware that income inequality has grown, right? Mm. They don't normally guess the astronomical amount, but genuinely those numbers are hard to keep in mind sometimes. So people are aware that income inequality has grown. They're concerned about it. So I think that you can just as well, also alongside that, talk about tax increases at the top to, you know, sort of to create uh, more economic fairness, more economic opportunity. But more broadly, I think that, you know, it would be, this is, this is me being naive. Here's my, here's my naive <laughs> It's good to know when one's being naive. I mean, I mean I've like, been being naive We all have the, the areas where we're like, you know what, but I'm I, just going to be naive on this. I, I can, I, I'm jaded enough. This is one, <laughs> one area where I'm preserving my naivety. <laughs> this is me being Pollyanna, but I would be very happy to see uh, politicians stop appealing to people's fears and mm. start recognizing that uh, the American voters are adults who have jobs and families and are responsible and people uh, and who can be trusted to confront serious political questions and, you know, just to, to sort of treat voters with a dignity that I think we didn't uh, see this year. Well, so, you know, I think this is a really fundamental point, but I have trouble with what to make of it, right? Because I think that one of the reasons why you need a political system, why you need a party system, why you need, shock horror, a political establishment is precisely that it's a set of people who are saying, look, there's a bunch of things that are in contestation between us and a few things that are not. And some of those are basic democratic norms. Um, you know, I don't threaten to jail your political opponent. But some of those are speech norms and truth norms that look like we will not, you know, all of us will, will massage the figures a little bit to, to, to make our record look better in small ways. That's always been a part of politics. But we're not going to just lie to voters. We're not going to just completely ignore political realities, like climate change, say, right? But, but what do you do, you know, if you're, you're a politician who wants to have an adult conversation with voters, who wants to be earnest and upfront, but the other side just doesn't play that game, and they're willing to lie, to exaggerate, to, to fear-monger. You know, I've been thinking about this a little bit as for, you know, six people are having a, a dinner party, right? And you want to, like, have an instant conversation. You want to, like, sit there and, and speak to each other in a polite way. And then somebody walks into the room and just starts shouting. And, like, sure, you can just continue having, like, your polite conversation with each other. But, like, you can't hear each other anymore because the guy is standing next to you shouting, right? So what do you do? You shout back? But then when you shout back, you, 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 you do, you know, like, I mean, this is the, you know, when they go low, where do we go? I... I so I think there are a couple of things here. I think that uh, there are institutional challenges to reaching voters in certain ways. Uh, some of that, those are media challenges, right? Um, you know, I think that particularly in the primary, the, you know, and, you know, the right-wing media, sure, but like the mainstream media gave Donald Trump a level of attention that was completely outsized compared to his ratings in the polls uh, and, you know, compared to the what the quality of his ideas uh, but the uh, the point is that there was uh, decisions were made by people who decide in meaningful ways what Americans learn about their politics right and those decisions were made in a way that it was craven mm. and profit seeking 
right? Mm-hmm. So that's a huge challenge for anyone who wants to do something that is not uh, spectacle uh, and the lowest of the low. But at the same time, I think it can be done, right? You yeah. just have to be innovative about how to reach people. And, uh, you know, there are Blessedly, you know, there's all the new sorts of new media that actually I think allow you to do that. You know, it's not as easy as it was in you know the 1930s that you know FDR could go on the radio and have a fireside chat, and there weren't a lot of options. You turned on the radio, that was what you were going to hear, you know. <laughs> right. And now that that um, universality of of sort of media information uh, is lost, and I think also the sort of public spirited aspect of the the choices that me- a lot of media make in terms of what to put on air. Uh, you know, has been has been decayed to some extent too, right? So these are huge challenges, but I don't. There is no other way. Hmm. So I've actually been inspired by a lot of this conversation, but I think I still don't quite know what to do. So I like this idea of the importance of of civic participation and so on, but sort of in the most concrete steps. If 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 somebody's listening to this and thinking, you know what, Vanessa really has convinced me that there's things we can do and things I can do. I'm not powerless as a citizen what do I do as soon as I've stopped listening to this episode? I think you should look up your local Democratic Party or your local school board, your Republican Party, and go to the next meeting. I think that's what you do. That's how you save democracy. There you go. Monocausal answer. Step one, step two. That's how how it's going to go. Sometimes monocausality is inspiring. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa. Um, and uh, thank you everybody so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight Uh, let me ask you a favor if you've enjoyed this episode please rate it on iTunes please share it with your friends and on social media and finally please send suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org thank you for listening to this podcast from New America this recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.